Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And it is the doldrums here in Making of a Historian land. I have a month left until the actual exam, which means that the pressure is on, and I'm trying to up my reading game, and I'm not letting myself take as many breaks, and I'm not going to the gym as much, and suddenly, without anybody noticing, there is a tub of ice cream in the refrigerator, which is mine, all mine. Do not tell my girlfriend, it is all mine. She cannot get a single bite. And I had to do my taxes and pay way too much in taxes because grad students have a very bad financial situation where we don't get paid at all and we have to pay taxes on all of it because uh, the IRS taxes our tuition as income. Yay. And it is grading time in the work of a graduate student, which means that I have a pile of like 70 uh, papers written by undergrads, uh, which is not fun to read. If you are an undergrad, please make your papers more fun. Uh, I am a human being and I appreciate enjoyment. So stop writing these boring, horrible, difficult papers. Uh, and we have a blocked stink, which meant that all yesterday, as I was reading, I was like carting back, uh, you know, tubs of dirty sink water into the bathroom. And my girlfriend is really busy too, and she's pulling all-nighters. And for some reason, the books that I'm reading are going slower. I'm recording this at 7.30 in the evening. I've read only two books. I have another book to go, and hopefully more if I can squeeze it in. And it is just, it's thin. It's a thin time. So today, I will be talking about one of the big landmark dates in British history. There are three really huge ones. There's 1066, when William the Conqueror came over to Britain with a bunch of Normans and killed the old king and started a new dynasty. There's 1688, when William III came over with a bunch of Dutch and kind of kicked out the old king and started a new dynasty, kinda. And then there's 1832, where the parliament passed what is called the Great Reform Act and changed the way that parliamentary seats were apportioned. So one of these three great dates is not like the other. And one of the questions that I hope to answer over the course of this podcast is why it is that parliamentary reform is accorded this big, huge, monumental status in 19th century British history, equal to that of invasions of, you know, grumpy Normans and wholesale changes to the constitution of the country. So here's a map to the rest of the episode. First, we're going to talk about the history of the passage of the 1832 Reform Act itself. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, how politics was actually done in Britain, how elections happened, and why people thought that things needed to change. Then I'll talk a little bit about the actual political environment that led to the passage of the 1832 Reform Act. Then I'll talk about what the act did, what it didn't do, and then I'm going to zoom out and try to tell you guys what we can see the 1832 Reform Act as in history. Then I'm going to discuss a little bit about some of the different arguments historians have had about what the 1832 Reform Act actually means. 
So let's start and talk about the background and just discuss a little bit about how elections happened in the 18th and 19th centuries. So you will notice there are elections and members of parliament are actually elected. Uh, think of the British government a little bit like the American government. You have a lower house, uh, which in America is the House of Representatives and in uh, Britain is the House of Commons. You have an upper house, which in America is the Senate, which are sometimes elected, and in Britain is the House of Lords. Now, in the House of Lords, you would have uh, people who had titles to particular landed estates, but you'd also have bishops, not just of the Church of England, but also the Church of Ireland as well, and I think the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, although I'm not sure. And just like in America, you had an executive. In America, we have the president. In Britain, you had the king. Now, the king was usually too German or too grumpy or too stupid or too ill-informed or too drunk uh, to actually make the kinds of decisions that needed to be made. So instead of making the decisions himself or herself, the monarch would appoint a ministry a group of people who were employed by the monarch to get the bills that the monarch wanted to pass through parliament. So central to the ministry was the ability to pass legislation. This ministry was headed by a particular minister who over time became known as the prime minister. Prime minister started out as being, you know, a term of abuse, and then it became an actual office. The minister who could get everything done. And getting things done meant passing bills, particularly the bills that paid for the important stuff that the British state wanted to do. Now, there were three ways that a ministry could fall. The first was that the king didn't like the ministry and kicked him out and started a new one. The second is if the ministry didn't like itself and just crumbled into dust. And the third is if the ministry couldn't get key pieces of legislation passed. So what I want to just point out here is the essential thing about politics is you have a bunch of people who are trying to cobble together to make sure that they have parliamentary majorities. When they don't, they have to call an election or something bad like that. So people voted in these members of parliament, but this was not a democracy by any stretch of the imagination. Not everybody could vote. Very few people could vote, and most people up until 1832 did not think that most people should vote. Now, even if we discount all of the disamenities that people had, there were still a lot of members of parliament, a lot of members of the House of Commons, who were voted in on what are called rotten boroughs and pocket boroughs. Now, these were cities that had been given parliamentary representation way back in the day, but they had declined a lot, and so they were pretty much under the control of a particular patron, or they could just be bought. Now, when I describe this, you think, oh, what awful people, the people who would stand for these rotten boroughs. But actually, they were uh, oftentimes the places that some of the biggest politicians were elected from. So Old Sarum, which is this uninhabited hill, uh, which is next to New Sarum, which had seven electors and returned two members of parliament, 
was the seat of the great Pitt family. David Ricardo, one of the super famous political economists, uh, had bought a rotten borough for himself for 4,000 pounds. And I just want to point out that the names of the rotten boroughs and even the idea of it is so, you know, classically British. Uh, you have Old Sarum, East Loo, Plimpton Earl, Bramber, and Trim were all names of rotten boroughs. Another weird thing about the electoral system is that a lot of times elections weren't actually contested. Uh, each borough or uh, county seat returned two MPs, and oftentimes uh, these MPs were not challenged. They were not challenged because people who might want to challenge them had done like some exploratory digging and realized that you know they couldn't get the support that they wanted, or they were not challenged just because the uh, areas were you know knitted up by a particular local landlord, and and it would have been too expensive or too difficult to unseat them. And when elections were contested, it wasn't like how you imagine now, where you go into a polling booth by yourself and, you know, make your little choice and that's it. And it happens over a single day. No, elections were public. They took place uh, over a week or more. And they were not these individual kind of safe moments. Instead, they were these massive processionals of banners and drinking and election did not take place in a private cubicle but rather up on this big wooden platform called the hustings that voters had to walk up to actually get to to cast their vote and this meant that the election took kind of the air of a public party and people would go out there and get free booze provided by the candidates and free you know food and uh, they would, if paid enough, rough up any person trying to go up and a, a vote for a person that they didn't like. And in this way, we can see this seemingly, you know, reprobate system actually allowing communities some form of voice, actually allowing people who were disenfranchised, like the poor women, some form of voice, some sort of say in what happens. Because in this moment, Everybody, the working people, the poor, the indignant, the women, had to be appeased by the ruling class so that they wouldn't make the festivities or the ceremonials of election too difficult for them. And when all was said and done, when uh, somebody was actually elected, they didn't give a staid speech with balloons. They were drunkenly and boisterously carried through the city on a chair, which is called chairing the member of parliament, and it was riotous. But the big thing about this system that I want to make clear is that it was uneven. Different boroughs had different ideas of what constituted an elector. Some people, you had to be a member of the corporation of the borough. Other places, there was a rather low property qualification. It was different everywhere. In addition to boroughs, there were county seats and also corporations like Oxford and Cambridge had uh, members of parliament that were elected in. Another thing to emphasize is that this is not an idea of individual representation, but rather that people who are voting are representing interests or families or places, and that members of parliament are not representing their uh, the people who voted them, but instead are representing these you know broad groups of people. So people at the time did 
see problems with this system, increasingly so as the 18th century becomes the 19th century. One persistent problem we can just file under the big gigantic label of corruption. The idea is that pliant members of parliament got into power through rotten boroughs that were provided by a patron, and they would do what the patron wanted in parliament, and because of the patron they would get sinecures and seats and places, and this allowed a small group of people to control the government and take away the liberties and the property of the rightful English person. Another idea was the fact that the geography of Britain was changing, and cities like Birmingham and Manchester were getting huge because of, you know, people migrating for what would become the Industrial Revolution. But places like Birmingham and Manchester hadn't really exist when the boroughs were getting the vote. And so these gigantic and increasingly growing cities were represented not as boroughs, not as cities, but as county seats as rural areas, as parts of the countryside. And so there was a growing uh, recognition that the seats of the members of parliament were divided really, really unequally. And all of this came to a head after 1815. So the 18th century, remember, was a century of brutal war against France. And the most brutal war against France was what goes under the line of the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars from about 1793 to 1815. It was long and it was hard. And at the end of it, in 1815, Britain was spent. Not only had people been fighting for about 25 years, but there was incredibly high debt, which meant that there was incredibly high taxation to pay off the interest on that debt. And in addition to that, in 1815, the crops were doing badly and there wasn't enough food. So there was social chaos. People smashed machines and riots. There were large protests in cities like Manchester where people said, look, we want to be represented. We want to have an MP like everybody else does. One of these demonstrations in St. Peter's Square in Manchester ended in a massacre, which was known in public as Peterloo, in an ironic reference to Waterloo. Here, a couple years after that great British victory, you have soldiers gunning down British civilians. Why? Because they went into public and they advocated for parliamentary reform. And remember, there's soldiers everywhere. There's soldiers in the crowds of Peterloo. There's tons of demob soldiers walking around who know how to use guns, who have guns, who have military training. And a lot of them are unemployed and disgruntled. So everybody is freaked out. Everybody who's looking at this is worried and seeing this wave after wave of protest and agitation in ways that seem new and thinking, is this going to be our French Revolution? Are we going to lose the plot the way that the, the French did? Cut to the 1820s. There was a little bit better economy, so the social unrest was not as grievous. And after a series of social reforms from 1828 to 1829, uh, the repeal of the Test Corporation Acts, Catholic Emancipation, some people felt that it was actually time for parliamentary reform. 
I don't want to go too deep into the political history of it because I find it kind of boring, but I'm going to give some broad outlines. What you have to understand is that the Tory party had been in power pretty much uh, for the extent of the Revolutionary Napoleonic Wars. The Whig Party had gotten hold of things for a year or so, but they had wanted to push parliamentary reform and the king stopped them. And they had been waiting in the wings, not doing much, just kind of being proudly aloof from politics, uh, waiting for this moment when reform would seem imminent. And in 1830 to 1831, it seemed imminent. A lot of Tories, uh, after uh, the big legislation of uh, Catholic emancipation and the repeal of Test and Corporation Acts, decided that, look, all bets were off. Parliamentary reform is something that we might be able to do in order to save the nation. And there was a lot of agitation for reform. And it didn't help that there were bad harvests, which meant that grain was expensive and people were grumpy. And so there was this whole gigantic universe of reform. People looking for slavery abolition to reform the currency. People wanted to repeal the corn laws. People wanted to reform factories. Uh, and people thought that parliamentary reform was at the heart of it. Parliamentary reform would be the first step to reforming everything, to sweeping away old corruption. A great um, quote from this time, a great slogan is, Potter and purity of election, food, knowledge, and justice without taxation. There you can see all of these different ideas kind of percolating all together. And these ideas were fed by an increasingly aggressive radical press who was publishing these big ideas, urging people to support parliamentary reform, telling people about what was happening in parliament, and serving as conduits from the people on the ground who were grumpy and the members of parliament who might actually push legislation. So I'm now going to talk a little bit about the legislative history. It gets kind of, you know, tricky, so I'm going to slide over a lot of stuff. So we have a Whig government in 1829 under Lord Russell, and he proposes a reform bill. And there's a bunch of legislative battles. Long story short, the reform bill passes, but the king won't sign it, leading, as these things do, to a new election because they can't form a new ministry that has a majority in parliament. And what you do then is you have a new election and see what is going to shake out. And people widely saw this new election as being a referendum on reform. And the Whigs, who people had seen as standard bearers of reform, won handily. And the people who disagreed with reform, well... They didn't want a revolution. So, after a bunch of legislative prosering, they caved. And the Great Reform Act was passed in 1832. So what did this Great Reform Act actually do? Well, it removed 142 rotten boroughs and created 130 new seats, uh, mostly in cities and places like that that had been underrepresented. It also regularized who got the vote. Uh, it made that weird confusion of borough electors a lot more even. Basically, from then on, all people in a borough who had 10 pounds of property got the vote. 
A note here, this meant a lot of people actually lost the vote. Some women had the vote uh, at this point uh, because of their membership in particular corporations. After 1832, no. To get the vote in a borough, you needed to be a man with a certain amount of landed property. Uh, it increased the proportion of uh, voters in the, the population from about 1 in 20 people, about 18% of adult males. And it also instituted a system of voter registration. And that's about it. That's what all this great fuss was about. That's what made politicians fear for their lives. That's what we think of as this big watershed in British history. So obviously, it did not lead to full democracy. You still have only about 1 in 20 people who actually have the vote. And it did not lead practically to a big change in how politics was done. After 1832, government was run by pretty much the same people who had run government before 1832. The politics of landed influence was still incredibly important. Uh, the great old landowners still basically reigned supreme. The South was still overrepresented in the country in comparison with the North and the Midlands. And there was no change in the kind of person who actually uh, represented the communities. There were no middle class, radical, nonconformist, or manufacturer MPs. Members of Parliament stayed the same kinds of person that members of Parliament had been. Voting was still public. Uh, there was really a limited change in the structure of the electorate. It did not make a middle-class electorate. So let's zoom out to see why people think that this is so important. If the change to us doesn't seem so great, and the change practically doesn't seem so great. We can immediately tell one of the big consequences of 1832 by uh, paying attention to one of its names. Sometimes people call it the First Reform Act. There's one way we can tell this story in which 1832 is Act 1 of a series of legislations that serve to make British politics increasingly democratic. And this has a very British history air to it. Britain gets democracy just as it gets modernity. But it gets it in a different way than other countries. It gets it slowly, constitutionally, conservatively, through these kind of weird and peculiar slow steps. So first you get a second reform act that reforms the borough electorate. Then you get the third reform act, which extends us to the country county, um, which you know gives a kind of limited manhood suffrage. And then finally. In 1918, you have the Fourth Reform Act, which gives uh, all men above the age of 18 and a lot of women the vote. Oddly enough, by the way, uh, even though this Fourth Reform Act was the biggest expansion in the electorate by far, uh, when you hear the story of the Reform Acts, it usually ends with the Third Reform Act because of sexism. The idea of women getting the vote is kind of hard to fit into the story for some historians. I wonder why. But it's hard to see 1832 as this Whiggish story of, you know, gradual democratization from 1832. In 1832, the people who passed the Reform Act did not want to, you know, usher in a new era of democracy. They wanted to preserve a particular kind of property. They wanted to preserve what they saw as the Constitution. 
So why does it matter? Why does talking about 1832 actually get us so riled up as British historians? Well, uh, J.C.D. Clarke uh, sees 1832 as the end of the 18th century. Uh, the 18th century for Clarke was this uh, confessional state where the monarchy and the church and the aristocracy are basically all gathered together in this love fest of mutual power and approval. Society is this hierarchical, you know, canvas, this tapestry of ranks and orders, all seamlessly integrated under the church. There might be dissent, sure, but dissent is, you know, not a right. It is a privilege that is granted by the Anglican ascendancy. The big change is not just 1832, but the whole mess of legislation that happens from 1828. That is the Test and Corporation Acts, which allows dissenters not mere toleration, but allows them to participate in the offices of government without having to pretend that they're Anglicans anymore. And even more, the passage of Catholic emancipation, which ends a lot of what some of these grumpy Anglicans thought of as what the British state was meant to be doing, being a confessional state. With Catholic emancipation, you can be a Catholic and still be a political member of the British state. And this is the context in which the Great Reform Act happens. It is a suicide by the ruling elite that ends, as uh, Clark calls it, the social nexus, or as other people might call it, the episteme of the Ancien Regime. And this is why it freaked people out. It wasn't future democratization that they were worried about. It was the end of this confessional state. Some see it as the triumph of the middle classes. Uh, they see the agitation for the Reform Act as this uh, alliance of the working classes and the middling classes. Here is the political education of the people who would inherit politics in the second half of the 19th century, the working people, the middle classes, and they did their politics in seemingly modern ways through organizations, through clubs, through print, uh, through uh, petitions, through marches, through protests. And in this sense, we see the 1832 Reform Act not as a victory of democratization, but rather as a betrayal of the working class by the middle classes. Because the middle classes, in this perspective, get some sort of win. And the promise was is that then they would push for working class emancipation as well. And they don't. And then there's a question of what do I think about it? Is this an Ancien Regime thing? Is this a middle class thing? I think that this is part of a story of how new kinds of communication technologies and new kinds of organizations let people see themselves as being part of a different kind of social grouping. Instead of Peter Clark's hierarchical society that you might see in an Anglican church, these people were seeing society through clubs and through newspapers 
and through alehouses, and through cities that had been divided by increasing segregation, and through factories in which people worked in new orientations. And these physical spaces and these media of information allowed people to view the society they lived in in new ways. Instead of this hierarchy where it's kind of okay if you don't have the vote because you're represented by your betters. Instead of that, you got a much more complicated picture in which the solidarities in which you're meshed are kind of confusing. You might be a worker, you might be a dissenter, you might be a northerner, and all of these identities kind of cut across that old hierarchy. And the question is, what's fair under that system? How do we justify the inequality that we see in the world, and how might we mitigate it? And it's those questions that I see spurred by technology and urbanization and new kinds of economies that are pushed to the fore in the Great Reform Act. And just to make clear, the mechanism of this is the uh, parliamentary uh, agitation that happens in the 30s. The law is passed, we have to remember, by a bunch of grumpy MPs who might not have even realized what they're doing. But the import of it is that, yes, it served as this political education, not of the middle classes and the working classes, but rather of the political nation at large, the newspaper reading uh, population, the club-going population, the population of people who cared enough to want to do something. And for a while, their eyes were put on parliamentary reform. That's how you made the country better. That's how you eased the inequalities of daily life. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of Historian. Uh, I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tweet about us. If you're on Reddit, share us on Reddit. I can tell anytime someone does because there's huge increases in my traffic. Uh, thanks very much for listening, and I will speak to you guys tomorrow.